actually etched your name on the metal frame of your chair, just to make sure that it's there. Although that might very well be true, today you're going to have a little bit of a different style of uh, message presentation. And so with that in mind, if you're a child especially, a child especially, you might want to move up to like the front row so you can see things. Uh, Any bottle of water? Aware. And if you're an adult who actually is interested and would like to see, you might want to move up a little bit closer. That's your call. Thanks. Uh, I would get as close as you can, but not so close that the sword can hit. Okay, just a little bit of distance, all right? Uh, but come on up. Join in. Go ahead. It's okay. Move. Where do you want to sit? Ninety-nine. Somewhere between... 1999. 1999. <laughs> How many of you were here in 1999? <laughs> okay, two of you. Uh, you weren't even alive. <laughs> um, so it's been a while since she's been with us, and we're grateful for the opportunity to have him back. Uh, I've known Mike uh, for... It's hard to imagine. I was thinking about this morning. <laughs> I sure am. Most people would rather meet her than me anyway. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm sorry? Uh, <laughs> she's the quiet, shy type like me. <laughs> oh, boy. That's what I'm looking for. I never use them, but I'm going to use one this morning. Thank you. You look really familiar. You're a Schultz, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> Man, you just look at him. I, I can tell who he is. <laughs> um, well, let's see. Where, is, where did he go? Where did Pastor Chris go? Oh, there you are. Okay. Uh, to be exact, um, it was 43 years ago. I was four years old. How old were you, buddy? <laughs> I'm older than you. And um, I'll never forget it about your pastor that um, I, my parents and my um, and my aunt and uncle brought me to Elam as a freshman student, and they were all drinking vodka. <laughs> and that's how I was dropped off at Elam. I think my aunt passed out uh, in the car. Great. First, uh, but I uh, loved her to pieces. But anyway, so when I got out of the car and mom and dad left, I, w I found out I was assigned to Failing Hall. And uh, so I was walking up the steps to Failing Hall, and there was this... Uh, 
distinguished-looking young man standing on that landing. I can see it as I'm talking about it. He was the first person I ever, first student I met at Elam, and he had his brown hair parted on the side with his bangs, and I can see it as plain as day. And uh, I've told him that many times, probably too many times, but that's, he was my first student impression of Elam, and then Pastor Chris also happened to room next to me uh, in Failing Hall that first year, in the room right next door to me. And... Um, Another sweet memory, he and I were ministering together years ago, and I was really under attack, and I was under it, I was discouraged, I couldn't get out of it. Ever been there? And, it, and I always remember the scene of Saving Private Ryan. I don't know if you remember the end of the movie, but um, Tom Hanks is on the ground, he's just about to have a German tank run over him. In his last, he's just trying to shoot this 45 at this tank in here. Clink, clink, clink. And you're thinking, if you've never seen the movie, okay, he's toast. And out of nowhere, and this, the tank just blows the pit, the bits. And you're like, what happened? And a P-51 Mustang tank buster took it out. And so when Pastor Chris like, came and ministered to me in that time we were together, that's uh, exactly what I saw in my mind where he just came and whatever he said just set me free and he was my tank buster. So much so that I bought you a P-51 model <laughs> of an airplane. <laughs> I did. Now I remember, buddy, it's all coming back to me. When I was here the last time, I went in your office and you, I'll never forget it, you had a picture, a big picture of Jesus overlooking a man sitting at his desk studying. Is that still in your office? All right, I remember that. Okay, it's all coming back to me now. But another thing, and I'll stop talking about your pastor, but then I admired that you had a shepherd's crook in your office, and then Pastor Chris bought me one. And I still have it, and I, in fact, I was going to bring it with me on this trip, and then I realized that I have it up at camp, where I do uh, shepherding a lot of little ones. But, um, and um, I'm in my 32nd year of ministry, and uh, I pastored children full-time for 14 years of those years. And in the last 17 years, Kim and I have been living totally by faith, doing itinerant work. And uh, she, it's very, very rare she is with me. Uh, the reason she is with me this time is because we go, we're going to Ohio tomorrow to do more ministry there uh, at our, young, our oldest son's church where he's an associate. And there's no way she was letting me go to see the grandkids without her. So <laughs> that's why she's here, okay? But it's a delight to have her here. And... Um, and I also, something happened um, yesterday, uh, in those 32 years almost of ministry, I've never ministered five times in one day, and I did yesterday, so I'm ready to preach on Eutychus, who fell out of the window because he was sleeping. <laughs> so it's like, wow, I am tired, but I found out in th through the years that when you're weak, you're strong. And I tell my camp staff every camp every year, Caitlin, you know, Caitlin's been from our church in Delaware, and she has been at camp with me for a zillion years, but the weaker the vessel, the more glory God gets for using them. And Paul Johansson said, I'll never forget it, it isn't your strengths that get in God's way. I mean, it isn't your weaknesses that get in God's way. It's your strengths. It's your strengths that get in His way. Brother Joe also said that your greatest natural ability is your deepest spiritual need. You get that? What you can do 
is your deepest spiritual need. Hmm. So, your uh, Pastor Chris, in fact, when he honored me with the invitation, there's Karen. Hi, sweetie. She was a senior. She was a freshman with us too, and uh, so good to see you, hon. I didn't know if you were here or not. Uh, so, hallelujah. Um, he asked, Pastor Chris asked me months ago, he's like, a, he's like a male Kim, he's very, very organized and, you know, I was saying this about Mark Scorsone yesterday, I don't have the next 20 minutes planned and you are so far ahead of me, like her, you know, 2034 is already on the agenda, but uh, so I was like, so, and I need people like you, but, um, but I knew almost immediately when he told me about your thrust to serve Warsaw, right, you know, serving them. That's how you win people, right? You serve them. And I thought the text that I've been preaching all summer would be perfect for it, is, um, which is the text this morning for John chapter 15. Also, forgive me, you're the grout girl, aren't you, hon? <laughs> this is going to sound really weird, but I was thinking of your mother all day yesterday. You know why? Because there's a woman sitting on the front pew uh, during the workshops I did and whatever, and... I was thinking, good grief, she's got to be Margie's younger sister, or she snuck in my time machine and went back in time, because did your mother have a younger sister? He looked just like her. I was thinking, wow, that looks like Margie. Anyway, forgive me, but good to see you. Hug your dad for me when you see him, okay? When I grow up, I want to be like him, but anyway, forgive me, I'm a little bit, but um, the life is in the text. The life is in the text. I'm going to pray in a second, Nathan. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> the life is in the text. God's deepest, found, his deepest fountains of his Holy Spirit are in the foundations. Is that sister who was on TV talking about the foundations class here? Is that you? Okay, you're on TV too. The deepest experiences of the Spirit of God are in the text. The life is in the text. There is water in the Word. I've come to see that more and more and more. You, can only, you only have to put your eyes on the Word for seconds and something happens. It just oozes water. And that's what I'm praying for for us this, this morning. Amen? My, my ache is is that you understand the foundation of serving, why you do it, how you do it, what you don't do, and that this church would be very, very fruitful in this community. You already are, I know. But it's awesome that your goal is to reach them. Amen? So I pray that this will uh, help clarify. When, um, when they asked me to do the, uh, the uh, workshop all day yesterday, uh, the first message I gave was the value of the soul. Well, Gertie, this is a kid's seminar. No, you've got to have the foundation of all that you do. You know, the theology underneath <laughs> it. Because I told the workers, your theology affects your methodology. It affects everything. And if you have a weak theology with ministry to children, your methods and what you do is going to be affected by it. So I pray that this precious text, John 15, 1 through 8, will help just be part of your foundation of this thrust of service and also um, just what you go back to 
is you to endeavor to be filled with the fruitfulness of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. So, Lord, I give you the time, the things, Lord, that you want, uh, Lord, magnified and extolled. May it be so. Of course, your great name. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, before you understand John chapter 15, you have to understand the history of the vine imagery in the whole Bible. Jesus said in John 15, 1, I am the true vine. Why would he say that? I'm the true one. I'm the real thing, the genuine one. And here's the interesting fact, beloved. God is never referred to as a vine in the Old Testament, which is at the time, at the time Jesus spoke that, that's all they had was the Old Testament. But Jesus said, I am the true vine. Well, every single time that the vine is used in the Old Testament, it always applies to Israel. Never to God. But every single time it does, Psalm chapter 80, Ezekiel chapter 15, 17, and 19, Hosea chapter 10, um, Isaiah chapter 5, Every single time it refers to the Israel being the vine, they miserably failed God. Isaiah chapter 5 is a glorious one. And if I had time, I asked Pastor Chris, we would do a time machine drama preceding this message, but it would have sent me to heaven with all the, pre <laughs> with all the prep for it. But basically what it entailed is a first century vineyard. And here's, here's what Isaiah said in chapter 5. He said, I'm going to sing... For my well-beloved. Is there intimacy there between the prophet and his God? I am my beloved's and he is mine. So here the prophet. I'm going to sing a song for my beloved. A song about him. What's it about Isaiah? Then he goes, it's concerning his vineyard. It says he had a vineyard. Now, just this morning again, that little word had three words, three letters on a word, and I was worshiping. My beloved had a vineyard. That means it belonged to him. I belong to him. He has me. Just a little word like that. If you, if you take time to focus on it, the Spirit of God illuminates and the life starts flowing. My beloved had a vineyard. And he planted it in a fertile hillside. Often in first century Israel, vineyards were planted on hillsides. And it says that Isaiah said that he planted a choice vine. You know when God does something, it's always choice. Choice vine on a fertile hillside. Then it says that he dug around it. When you would build a vineyard, you had to dig a trench around it. When you dug the trench, you didn't throw the dirt from the trench uh, on the outside, you threw it on the outside. You wanted to build the wall up so that enemies and predators, if they tried to get in the vineyard, they would have to scale the wall besides the trench that protected the vineyard. So it says when the Lord dug it, he was digging a trench all the way around it. What was in the heart of the Lord? This is my vineyard. I protect that which is mine. So he's digging, throwing the dirt on the outside. But then he would also pile up rocks and pile up branches and thorns and whatnot. 
He wanted to make the, 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 the vineyard as secure as possible. Notice the time and the care and the effort the prophet is saying, singing about his beloved. And so the wall's high, the trench is deep, and there it is, the vineyard is safe. It says then he, do, he built a tower in it. The watchtower was often in the middle of the vineyard. What was it for? To keep an eye on the vineyard. You watch for enemies, you watch for predators. What would get in the vineyard? Thieves, especially during harvest time. The fruit of your labors, they would come and want to steal. Wild animals, boars, bears, jackals, and foxes all loved grapes. You would get in the watchtower and you'd keep an eye on your predators and on your enemies and also on your children because they would also be working in the vineyard. So he built a watchtower. Do you see, beloved, the care and how meticulous God was with his vineyard? It also says he removed the stones, not the small ones. It was good to have small stones in the soil because it aerated it. But he took out the big ones, anything that would inhibit the growth of the vine. So Isaiah is singing this song about the Lord and his vineyard. Now watch. And this is what the Lord said. He did all of that. Then I expected. Lord, you had expectations? The Lord has expectations when he has lavished so much grace on his people. I expected to find good grapes on it, but I found only worthless ones. Then there's the heart of the Lord with his people when they're in the wrong. He said, the Lord said, what more could I have done for you than what I did? It reminded me when David fell with Bathsheba, 2 Samuel, right? Chapter 11, what did the Lord say to him? I gave you Saul's kingship. I gave his wives into your bosom. I would have even given you more if you wanted it. In other words, the Lord's saying again, what more could I give you than what I did? So when the Lord has such investment in his people, he expects fruit, right? But Israel proved again and again and again through all those prophets I mentioned earlier that the new covenant was needed because they were utterly helpless to fulfill the old one. And that's why Ezekiel later said, I'll take their stony heart and give them a heart of flesh. That's why Jeremiah said that I will write my law on their hearts. So that's the background, beloved, that you have to have before you go to John 15. So that when Jesus says, I am the true vine, these were a type of me, but pale in comparison. I am the true vine. Now watch. And my father is the husbandman. Now the Greek word there is Georges, which we get our English word George from. All right, and it means technically from the Greek word ergo, which means to work, and gase, which is the earth, so a tiller or a worker of the ground. Basically, it means farmer. But in the context, it can mean more than that. So Jesus says, I am the true vine, not Israel. I'm the one that you've been waiting for, the real thing. I'm the genuine article. And my father is the husbandman. You got to get that. He didn't say my cousin or my uncle Barry. He said, my father, that means everything in the world. Jesus came forth from the father. He shares the same essence as the father. Different person from the father, but equal in every attribute. So when he says, my father's the one basically who takes care of me, better not mess with this vine. 
You, all, you have to understand this, beloved, before you go to verses 2 and 6, or you will think it's too severe. But you must understand, how does the father think, the husbandman think of his precious vine? How about Isaiah 42.1? Behold my servant whom I uphold. This is the father talking about Jesus. Angels! Yes, Lord. Keep an eye on him. Yes, Lord. I don't want him to stub his toe against a rock. It is done, Lord. Remember? He shall give his angels charge over you. Right? Lest you dash your foot against a stone. You see, the father's the husbandman. He's the one who takes care of the true vine. Right? My chosen one, whom my soul delights in. This is my beloved son, and in my am well pleased. Jesus said, the father never leaves me alone because I always do what's pleasing to him, John 8, 29. Remember how enthralled the father was with Jesus? This is my son, listen to him. This is all setting the stage for your fruit bearing, your service to Warsaw. This is the foundation of why you do it. We're getting to it. But you gotta understand this relationship first because you're gonna find in just a few minutes that you are attached to this true vine whom this husbandman is very zealous to preserve and take care of. Amen? John 6, 27, the Father has set on Jesus his seal of approval. John 3, 34, the Father was so enthralled with Jesus that he gave him his Holy Spirit without measure. So this is the relationship, beloved. It's the Father and the Son. The true vine and Father's the one who takes care of him. You must understand something. That the number one priority of what, uh, to God of everything that he does is not for the sake of his people. May God deliver us from man-centered gospels. The number one reason he does everything is for his own glory. Is to show who he is, how great he is, and all of his attributes. And then marvel of marvels, he condescends to share himself with his people. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ to himself. There it is. It's all about us. No, 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 no. For what end did God do that? To the praise of the glory of his grace. That's the ultimate end, not you. You don't want to be his ultimate end. You'll be a very insecure Christian. Because how about on those many days when you don't deserve God to do anything for you? Let's say most days. But because his number one goal of everything he does is not you, but it's him that gives you security, right? And those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. There it is. It's all about us. We're going to be like Jesus. No, 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 no. Keep reading. Why did God ultimately do that for us? That he, Jesus, might be the firstborn of many brethren. God's ultimate motivation for everything he does, himself you, are, you don't want to be pro, uh, numero uno on God's priority list. You see, it's got to be himself, his own glory. There wasn't a greater way that he could glorify himself than by having his son become like one of us, hardened rebels who hated his guts by nature, and then to make us just like him. I'm taking a long time on this relationship between the husbandman and the son. It's because... If we don't, you will choke on verses 2 and 6. But when you get this, my dear brothers and sisters, 
what happens in verses 2 and 6, it's rightly so. It must happen that way. Wow. So there it is, the relationship between the Father and the Son. So Father was going to do everything he can to make sure Jesus is most glorious. The fruitful vine and everything about him adorns him. Now verse 2. Because of this relationship, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, what does Father do? He takes it away. He must. Why? Number one, it's making his son look like an ugly vine. It takes away from the glory of the true vine if things attached to it are fruitless. Amen? That's why Father is zealous to remove. It says he takes them away. Because he must ensure that his son is glorified in the eyes of men, angels, and devils. So what does it say? Everything that doesn't adorn the son, he takes away. Now, every branch in me that does bear fruit, right? He leaves you alone because you're doing a great job and you're making Jesus look great. And Father's very content with that. Thank you, Pastor Chris, for shaking his head. He doesn't leave you alone. Remember, the Father's zeal is to make Jesus all glorious in the eyes of men. So watch. For those branches in him who are bearing fruit, he doesn't leave you alone. And you never want him to leave you alone. What does he do with those people? He prunes them. My dear brothers and sisters, in this noble aspiration of yours to serve and bless and reach Warsaw, you're probably going to go through a lot of this so that you can become even more fruitful in Warsaw. It's not a popular message. Who would like to put their finger in here for a demonstration of what pruning feels like? She's a brave woman, I'll tell you. <laughs> pruning hurts. What is pruning, Michael? When you do all the work and someone else gets all the credit. When someone is left gi less gifted than you, they get all the, the uh, accolades. When you ask God for years, sometimes decades for something, and he doesn't give it to you or he doesn't give it to you in the way you wanted it, or when you want it, that's pruning. When he lets people rip you to pieces with their spirit and with their words, and they never apologize, that's pruning. What does it say in Hebrews? Don't treat lightly the discipline of the Lord, because whom the Lord loveth, he he chasteneth, or hey, pruneth. Right? How many of you have been spanked by him? Feels great, doesn't it? It says no discipline is it, is it present, right? It doesn't it isn't feel good. But afterwards, it yields the fruit of righteousness. So those who are already bearing fruit, he prunes you don't understand, Lord, I'm trying everything I can to please you and make you happy. And nothing matters to me but you. 
I mean, Lord, so many carnal, worldly Christians, I mean, and you're the one who gets in the fire and cut and dealt with. You know why? Because you already look adorning to the Son, and Father wants to make you even more so. So the pruners come out. Now, the, the Greek word there is, is basically clean. Whoever uh, bears fruit, he cleans. Any Catherines in this room, first or middle names? All right, Catherine, it's from the Greek word katharizo, that means to clean. How many have ever had a heart catharization? It's a cleansing. And that's what Jesus is saying. The Father, he's going to cleanse you, prune you. Now, Jesus says in verse 3, you... Okay, you are already clean or pruned. Now Jesus is talking about the initial cleansing. Didn't think it would squirt that high, sorry. All right, you are already clean. He's talking to the disciples who love him and have borne fruit. Through the words that I have spoken to you. Jesus is referring to their initial cleansing. You know that you were born again, not of, incorrupt, not of corruptible seed, right? First Peter, but corrupt incorruptible seed. So when, on the day you were regenerated and born again, it was a combination of the Spirit of God, right? And the Word of God coupling together and creating new life in you. And Jesus is telling his disciples, you are already clean by the words that I have spoken to you. Lord, sanctify them by thy truth. John 17, 17, your word is truth. Husbands, love your wives. Well, how am I supposed to? As Christ loved the church. How did he do it? He gave himself for her. Presented himself for her. And by the washing of the water of the, the word. How many of you have been like your eyeballs have been glued to a screen for hours and you need a spatula almost to get them off and you feel the dirt inside you just by watching, not even, I'm not even talking about vile, foul, wicked things which are all over the place, just by watching and listening to the spirit of the world, even if there's nothing, you know, bad words or that three-letter word that I won't say because children are in the room or things like that, but you feel dirty after you have listened and watched it, and then you just go to the word of God just for seconds and you, have, you feel instantly starting to be cleaned. That's the nature of it. It's like a windshield wiper, isn't it? And that's what the word of God does. You are already clean by the words that I have spoken to you. All right? Now, this is awesome. Verse 4, Jesus said, this is imperative in the Greek, he commands it, abide in me. Did you get that, beloved? The Son of God is commanding you to stay close to him. He doesn't need you close to him. He doesn't need your love. The members of the Trinity were doing fine in eternity past, totally satisfied with each other in intermutual relationship and love. And they could have done that for all of eternity future and been totally fine. I was a bonehead as a young preacher. I used to say God created us because he, he was lonely. <laughs> I apologize, Chris. You know, Can you imagine the father turning to Jesus? Word, I'm lonely. Let's create Gertie. <laughs> you see the arrogance of that. In my ignorance, God didn't need anything. He's self-sufficient. That's what makes the marvel of it even greater. 
when he doesn't need your love, but he desires it so much he commands you to do it. Abide in me. It reminds me of Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 4, which was our camp theme uh, in 2014, I believe, called Static Cling. <laughs> Clinging to God all the time without having lapses. That's the goal. Okay? But Static Cling, it talked about you shall love the Lord your God. You shall follow him. You shall fear him. You shall obey his commandments. It says that you shall listen to his voice and watch now. You shall cling to him. Hebrew imperative. The same God who spoke that through Moses in Deuteronomy is now in a human form, and here he is again, commanding his people to love him. Wow. Wow. Then he says this, just as a branch, if it doesn't stay connected to the vine, can't bear fruit, so you, if you don't stay tight to me, you don't connect to me. You have no dynamite. You guys know the Greek word for, uh, you know, for power and ability and competency is dunamis. We get the word dynamite from it, although of course I want to be quick to say is that when the Holy Spirit through Paul and John and Jesus penned that word, or, or spoke that word, dynamite was not thought of, or of course Jesus and his omniscience knew about it was coming, but no one else did. But I'd use anything I can to help my audience remember the text. So Jesus said, if you don't stay attached to me, you have no dynamite to produce any fruit. Zero. Nada. I was in Costa Rica recently. Nada. You see? No dynamite. No ability. Young people, will this ever, will this ever have um, leaves on it? Why, honey? Why not? I love you. It's not attached to the tree. And Jesus said, we are just like that. Remember now, what Father does to branches, people like this, he takes them away. There's no fruit on them, and he's not going to have his son humiliated by having anything try to stick to him that doesn't have fruit that he deserves. You see? So it's impossible. If you don't stay connected to Jesus, you can't bear fruit. Then in verse 5, you guys are doing, not a minute past 4 o'clock, you said, Chris? <laughs> now watch this. Uh, can you Where's Kenny Bates? Where are you? Hey, buddy. You told me last summer that Pastor Chris likes to go into the Greek a lot, so I'm trying to follow my leader here. <laughs> but this is very emphatic in the Greek. Verse 5. I am the vine. What's Jesus saying? Not you. I am the vine. Ego. And very emphatic in the word order in Greek. Jesus is trying to get across to us with all due respect. Knuckleheads. Because we always get it backwards. I am the vine, not you. And then to make his point even more clear, you are the branches. But how oftentimes, beloved, even though we do it subconsciously, we think that we're the ones who are supposed to be responsible to bear the fruit. Paul Johansson's again said decades ago, he's never heard a tree grunting bear, trying to bear fruit. It just does it. You see, why? Because the branches are attached to the trunk. So Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches, not the other way around. Emphatic. All right? And then he says this, 
If you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. And here he comes again, hammering our human pride and self-sufficiency. Because apart from me, if you disconnect from me, you can do nothing. No dynamite. Now we come to verse 6. This is serious stuff. If anyone does not stay connected to me, of course, he already said in verse 4, if you don't, you don't have the ability to bear fruit, which is required. You know, I forgot to emphasize this, but remember earlier in verse 2, Jesus said, every branch that doesn't bear. That one word has brought me to my knees, at least in my heart. Just the word every. Do you know, my dear brothers and sisters, God is very, very thorough. Nothing or no one gets left behind. Every idle word that men speak in the day of judgment, they should give an account. And the books were open, Revelation 20, verse 12. And the dead were judged according to the things written in the book. And every one's name which was not written in the book. You see, Matthew 15, 13, what did Jesus say? Every plant that my father doesn't plant will be uprooted. You see, God's not sloppy, is he? Every. It's one of the most sobering things, but it makes me cling to him. Cling to him. Someone once wisely said decades ago, it's the love of God in front of us and the fear of God behind us. Both are adorable and worthy of praise. Fear of God is one of the most desperate things the young people of today need. Because until you fear him, you don't know him. And that wholesome, godly fear. How do I know, Michael, of the fear I'm feeling of God is godly or demonic or, or human? Here's how. Very simple. When, when you have the godly fear on you, you can't wait to get to him. You're terrified of him, but you want to dive at his feet and kiss them for a thousand years. Demonic fear drives you from him. And some of my most intimate times with him are when I'm scared to death of him, and all I want to do is hold him. I'm sorry, moving as fast as I can here. All right, now watch. If anyone does not remain in me, he is... Now, this is not a yay, honey. This is a nay. This is a sad thing. All right? If anyone does not stay connected to me, and hence you're not bearing fruit, so God the Father is going to be zealous not to let you be near Jesus, and you're not going to bear fruit. And the way that you do bear the fruit is stay connected to him. They are thrown away. The Greek word there is ballow. We get our English word ballistic. Intercontinental ballistic missiles. That person's got so bipolar. They're balli they went ballistic. It's from the Greek word ballow. It's the same word used. If any branch does not stay in me and bear fruit, they are thrown away. Now what makes me so sobered and fear the Lord and that, law, that fear of God that draws me to him? Beloved, we're not talking about branches here. We're talking about human beings who are made in God's image, whose love God desires so deeply he commands them to love him. But look what happens. Not bearing fruit is just not, well, you can take it or leave it. No, no, no. When you're not bearing fruit, there's a real evil in there. That the one who's altogether lovely and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, if they are thrown like that, there must be an unbelievable evil in this thing that we aren't seeing. It says they are thrown away like a branch. Then what happens? 
Hang on, kids. We're getting there. Such branches are gathered up. Remember now the zeal of the Father to adorn His Son. What happens to them? And who does the gathering? Matthew 13 is very clear about that. The branches are thrown. And it says they are gathered up. We know from Matthew 13 very clearly and repeatedly, the ones who gather up the lost and the tares and the wicked are the angels. The Son of Man will come in glory, right? He will send forth His angels and they will gather up everything that in His kingdom that doth offend and that worketh lawlessness. And they will gather them up and throw them where? How many of you have seen Wizard of Oz? Uh, that kills the point, honey, but I get you. Okay. Two of the most terrifying scenes of Wizard of Oz to me. First, the, the first one went, Annie Yam, Annie Yam, I'm frightened, Annie Yam. Remember when Aunt, and she's in the castle and the ball's there? And Aunt, Dorothy, where are you? Remember the, the ball's green? Sorry, if any of you aren't baby boomers, you haven't watched it. When we were kids, it was like the movie. But anyway, so all of a sudden the witch appears. Remember that? Scared the living daylights out of you. This is 1939 special effects. But then the other scary one is when they're in the witch's forest going to try to rescue Dorothy. How many remember that scene? Uh, the tin man, the lion, and the scarecrow. And as they're walking to the castle, all of a sudden, they hear that noise. What were they? Flying monkeys, remember it? This is 1939. You look up in the sky. And they were coming to get them. And it was terrifying. Now, I have medi- I have, when I have meditated on the, these verses in Matthew 13 for many times through the years because of different messages, I've thought of that scene. Think about it, beloved. The wicked, when they look up in the sky on that day, when the harvesters and the reapers come, for all of those who demeaned and disgraced and brought dishonor and hated the altogether lovely Lord Jesus Christ. It says they will be gathered up. And thrown into the fire. That's is why you have to understand verse 1 and the relationship of the Father and the Son. To understand the severity of this. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. Now, well, Michael, how do we bear the fruit? Where's Johnny Lonnie? I need you, buddy. April, this is typecasting, isn't it, honey? You, you come on out. <laughs> okay. What's the key? To turn around, buddy, and face the audience, okay? All right. Who is he? Who's he supposed to be? Thank you. Okay, I want to make sure you got it. So what is the key? What is the key? How do we bear this fruit and make sure it's godly fruit that we're saved apart from works as of the 500th anniversary month and year of the Reformation? I'm preaching at our son's church next Sunday on sola gratia, by grace alone. All right? One wise Reformation father said that we're, we're saved, we're not saved by works, but never without them. If you have saving faith, it produces works and service Examples like to Warsaw, you see, but how do we do it and make sure that we're not being legalistic or trying to earn our justification, which is the whole reason the Reformation started, by trying to add works to God's grace, which then doesn't make a grace. Here's how. What's the secret? How do we produce this fruit? Here's how Jesus says in verse 7. 
This is Jesus talking. If you abide in me, right? This is how you'll bear that fruit, beloved. If you abide in me, remember in John chapter 1, the only begotten God or the only begotten Son who abides in the bosom. I can, hear his, feel, I can feel his heart beating and I can hear it too. I know it's for April. I know. All right? But, right? The only begotten God or the only begotten Son, depending on how you read the text, who abides in the bosom of the Father. It's talking about that kind of abiding, that kind of relationship with the Son. Now watch, we're not done though. Jesus says, that's what you do. You stay tight to me. You stay connected to the true vine. You are the branch. I am the vine, Jesus said. You abide in me. Remain in me. Stay close to me. And my words, right? My shirt's too tight. My words, right? My words abide in you. Ask whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. Give us Warsaw, Lord, or we die. This is how you'll get Warsaw. Clinging to him. His word, let the word of Christ abide in you richly. And guess what happens, beloved, when you do this? Watch. I, I can't. You will have fruit all over you. Right? You're not listening to me. You're all staring at me. What's wrong? What is this guy? Is, it, am I, is this the key? You all know that this is how I knew when I was raising our children in the home. How I knew I would be in Jesus' word and in fellowship with him and having his word impress me and deal with me. And it was from that fellowship, the very first thing I wanted to do from that abiding time with him was go and lavish the blessing on Kim and the children. It's the same principle here. You have these abidings and tightness with Jesus and fellowship with him and letting his word abide in you. You're going to be bearing fruit all over the place in this church first and then in Warsaw. Thank you, Johnny, very much. And one final point. Thank you, bro. And one final point, and this is the end. Thanks for your patience. I wanted to do this object lesson just as one further proof of how it will be impossible not for you to bear fruit if you do with Jesus what I just did with Johnny. You ready? I, was gonna, I have dreamed of doing this object lesson to show the difference between works that are produced by grace and legalistic works. Now, this is not a Gertie trick. This is the real thing, okay? So watch. That's plugged in. See that? So I'm not just, I just, just do that to tell you that this isn't some kind of like magic trick and oh, he's just, it's not real electricity, it's electricity, okay? <laughs> now I have one, oh honey, you don't, okay? <laughs> All right, you don't want to do that, thanks for the confirmation, okay? So you go like this, there's 110 volts, right? Now, I wanted to do this for years and I finally in South Jersey, about a couple month or two ago, I was about to do it for the first time. I've dreamed of doing this for years to show an example or an illustration of how to produce works that are God works. I was going to not have, I just was going to use the light bulb to show that it's real electricity to the audience. And then I was going to take, and, and I can touch this right now. Make sure I'm not touching any metal over here. You'd think I was really, hmm. All right, so I can touch that. Well, Gertie, you're not getting shocked. Nope, because the circuit's not completed. But if I am holding that and I touch my other finger on that screw, you're going to really think something's going on here. Now, here's the principle. Why are you doing this, Michael? Here's why. And then, oh, and an elder interrupted me at the church. He said, Michael, don't do that. 
He said that if the occurring, and I've been shocked so many times doing home improvements. I mean, <laughs> I didn't think it'd be an issue if I got shocked. Well, the, the elder interrupted me. He said, Michael, I know if the current goes through you in a certain angle, it'll kill you. So he probably, he may have saved my life. So now I don't actually do it, but here's the principle. Just like I was holding Johnny, like we're supposed to hold Jesus, I challenge anyone in the congregation to come up here and touch both of these terminals and not move. Nothing. Not a, not a twitch of an eye, not a little tiny, not your hairs to stand up. Nothing. Is it possible? It is not possible. They even put wires on dead people and they move. What's the principle? Here's the principle. I'm going to unplug this before I do anything. Okay. If you are filled with the spirit of the living God, if you are clinging to Christ, holding him tightly, abiding in him as we showed up here a few minutes ago, and his words abiding in you, it will be impossible for you not to move. That is the key to fruit bearing. Now remember, we're saved by grace, but we're judged by works. If you have saving faith by grace, you have to have fruit or your faith was spurious. So as you endeavor in this thrust to reach your community, keep holding tightly to him, right? You will bear fruit, beloved, and it will be luscious and plentiful, Jesus said, by this my Father is glorified. And then by this you prove that you are my disciples. Because many in that day, Jesus said, will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and this and this and this? And what does he say? I never knew you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that this church is not inward focused. That your spirit, dear Father, is obviously moving here because they want to serve and reach the lost. They want to bear fruit. And I ask you, Father, that these precious words of John 15 would sink in deeper and deeper. They will cling to Jesus like the wires of the current. They will bear fruit. May fruit remain, Jesus, for yours and your Father's glory alone. Amen.